0: Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Last week when we were together, we began inspecting these three intertwined parables that Jesus gives starting in Luke 15. One, our focus last time was on the first of those three parables, the two introductory parables that reveal the nature of our lostness. Jesus spoke about a lost sheep, and then he spoke about a lost coin. And there in those parables, he presents himself as the one who goes out and he finds that which is lost. We see him going out as the good shepherd and finding that lost sheep. He reveals himself like this woman who's diligently searching for the lost coin. But then, in what we're going to consider today, Jesus presses this metaphor metaphor much farther. Instead of leaving the nature of the love of God to be represented by abstract illustrations, like a sheep or a coin, the third parable presents our lostness in a much more personal way. All of us have had some form of a broken relationship in our lives. You have either been directly involved or experienced or caused anguish due to a relationship break between you and another person. What Jesus does here is very important. He uses the common thread of broken human relationships just to give us a taste of what it means that we have a broken relationship with our God. Please follow along now in your own copy of scripture, starting in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus says, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we pray that today as we hear your word, that you would give us understanding. Where else can we go? For you have the words of eternal life. We pray that as we circle around the word today, that you would give us understanding, that by your spirit, you would give me the right words to say, and that by your spirit, you would give us ears to hear and receive. I pray, Lord, that this moment of worship through preaching and worship through hearing would be pleasing in your sight, that we might live in accordance with your word, and that we might hear what the spirit is saying to the church through your, through your preacher today. Lord, I pray that you would give me strength and wisdom, For I am a broken vessel, I'm a broken stick. But Lord, we thank you that you can use people such as myself for your glory. And we pray that today you would please use this time for the edification of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before jumping into the text, it's really important that we remember the main point that we were considering last week. We need to remember the main theme that combines these three stories. Last week, we set our focus on the two lost items that were sought out by their owners, the good shepherd for the sheep and the woman for the coin. At the conclusion of both of those parables, there is a line that Jesus gives that informs us as to the meaning, the purpose of what he's saying. Remember, he said something after each one. He says that there is joy in heaven. But he doesn't say over when this item is found. He says there is joy in heaven when a sinner repents. So what you must understand in order to comprehend what Jesus is teaching is that there is a one-to-one ratio with what is being said in regards to being found equals repentance. When we are found, it looks like repentance. That is what Jesus is going to get at here in this story. We're going to see it much more evidently. He makes crystal clear that being found is equivalent to and synonymous with repentance. Parables were not used by Jesus as a way of explaining exhaustive systematic theology. They were used as a way to get across a single and specific point in a poignant way. So whenever you're attempting to understand the meaning of a parable, you always need to zoom in on what exactly is the purpose that Jesus is getting at here. So last week, our attention was primarily on the nature of our lostness. But now this week, our attention will be centered on what the parable of Jesus teaches about the role of repentance in our coming and being found by God. This third parable reveals that our depravity is much deeper than the first two parables reveal. Sheep are stupid. I don't know if you guys are very familiar with them. They're very ignorant. And so, sheep, in their foolishness and their ignorance, will just sometimes wander away. They will not get too far, and then they will not be able to find, like the sheep are right beside them, and they are concerned, I, where are the other sheep? And they just get lost and they wander off into no man's land, and they're just dumb enough that they can't find their way back. And coins, well, coins don't lose themselves. There is no purpose of escape in their heart where they're trying to get away from their masters as much as it might seem like those of us who lose things but they don't lose themselves but what we see taking place here is very important it reveals to us that we are not like the sheep who are just dumb we are not like the coin who just happens to be lost we are lost intentionally we naturally pursue and deliberately choose to run from God instead of to him. We were not separated by accident. We were not just unaware. We were not just ignorant or aimless. We were opposed to God and we ran from him. That is what the scripture teaches us about the natural state of the human heart. We are sinners by nature, but we are also certainly sinners by choice. Jesus begins the story by informing us that this young man was demanding an inheritance from his father. Being the younger son, it stands to reason that he would have normally received very little in inheritance. In those days, it was the older son who received the lion's share of the property, and the younger son only received a small amount. This says something significant about the father. It reveals that he must have had an immense property in order to give something so small to this younger son, yet him still have so much to squander. As a child, my favorite movie was The Lion King came out when I was in fourth grade and blew me away. And apparently I had good taste because this movie was recognized for its artistic storytelling and was turned into a Broadway production. And not just any Broadway play, no, The Lion King is now and has been for long the highest grossing Broadway production of all time. And number two doesn't even come close. It just so happens to also be the first date that I took my wife to. Um, Young men, if you... Want to get a wife? That's a good way to start. Our dates have been a little bit downhill since then. Um, But our love is much greater, so there's that too. Um, My children have now fallen in love with that movie. And occasionally, my son Athanasius, he's the musical one in the family, he will roam about the house, singing at the top of his lungs, I just can't wait to be king. I have a very different perspective on those lyrics now than I did when I was nine years old. The young Simba and Nala join their voices together to declare, no one's saying, do this. No one's saying, be there. No one's saying, stop that. No one's saying, see here. Free to roam around all day, free to do it all my way. Oh, I just can't wait to be king. And just like Simba, this young man in the story is so self-centered and egotistical that he doesn't even care that his demand to rule over his own life has far greater implications. So consider what's happening. By demanding autonomy and self-rule and power and inheritance, the son in this story is functionally rooting for his own father's death, both in The Lion King and in the story of the prodigal son. The big difference between my illustration is that Simba seems to be ignorant of how evil and selfish his request is. He seemingly hadn't put two and two together here. He mistakenly thought that he could simultaneously love his father and also wish for him to be removed from authority over him at the same time. But there is no way, there is absolutely no way that the prodigal son would be so blind to reality. By demanding his inheritance, he was emancipating himself from the family. He was declaring that he loved wealth more than he loved his father. He rejected his upbringing. He disowned his family. He disavowed his nation and customs and traditions. He ran to a far country. Remember, in those days, running to a far country was different than it is now. There's no uh, now in this this day. There's not such a thing as the people of God that are within a specific border. The kingdom of God is in all places. It is wherever the people of God are. The kingdom of God is with us. But in those days, the kingdom of God was in a specific place for a specific people. It was the nation of Israel. So to leave those borders was to intentionally run from God himself. And so what we see happening here is this man is declaring, I will not have you to rule over me, Father. You are nothing to me. And in fact, he was declaring, I wish you were dead. And anyone in those days who heard this story would have fully grasped the intensity and the depravity of this demand. If I took a straw poll of everybody on the way in and just asked you to define the word prodigal, I might be wrong, but I assume that most people would have a difficult time actually defining the meaning of that word. In fact, if you're anything like me, this story or idioms about this story is the only occasion that you've ever heard the word prodigal in your entire life. Somebody will say, oh, he's a prodigal son. Oh, the prodigal son returns. That's the only reference to this word that I can ever remember in my entire life. But that's not exactly what prodigal living. Let's consider what we see here in the story and why we use this word for him. Jesus says in verse 13 that he squandered his property in reckless living. That's a pretty good picture of what prodigal means. The literal definition of the word prodigal means just to spend lavishly. That's the dictionary definition. It means to, another definition gives, uh, to spend freely or extravagantly without thought or care of the cost. So this young foolish man saw the pleasures of the world and he began to spend his wealth without question or care or concern. His life was all about partying. This was the guy that would go to the bar and he would order a round of drinks and then a few minutes later would round another, uh, order another round of drinks until everybody in the bar knew his name. This was the guy who never could, uh, nobody ever knew what to give him because anytime he desired something, he would just buy it for himself. This is the kind of guy that would always constantly have an entourage of people surrounding him. As you can imagine, it made him very popular that he would try to buy people's affection. He attracted a crowd of people everywhere he went. His conversations were probably full of constant laughter and frivolity. But These were fair weather friends, not genuine friends. They were just along for the ride. And as soon as the roller coaster came to a complete stop and that bar released, they escaped as quickly as they could. As soon as the money came to an end, they vacated as fast as possible, leaving the prodigal son with nothing but debt and nobody but himself. So at that point, this formerly wealthy young man was made to be a servant in order to survive. He was so Desperate that he took a job feeding pigs. Now, I know I've told you this many times, but I'm from Kansas. There are pigs there. And I remember occasionally when I was growing up, we would drive to see our friends in Fredonia, Kansas. And on the way there, we would drive past a pig yard. And there is nothing that smells like that in the entire world. There is nothing that comes close to the scent that is produced, which I can't even comprehend. How do they make that smell? But they have this horrendous scent as they root around in the mud and they produce this disgusting, overwhelming, putrid cloud all around where they live. It is truly a mystery of the universe that something so vile can produce something so good as bacon. I mean, how does that happen? It's a mystery. But beyond the natural repulsiveness of pigs, there's also a cultural level of humiliation that would accompany this job. The Jews were given the command in the Old Covenant not to consume any pork products. In fact, they were to avoid entirely being near these creatures. They would separate themselves. Societally, they would not allow them in their cities. They were not to be near them in the fields. The Jewish people would reject people who had been near them. They would be considered unclean if they would touch a pig farmer. You have to understand, this was not only a disgusting job, it was a culturally rejected job. The crowd hearing the story when, they, when Jesus said he became a pig feeder would have audibly gasped and been shocked and disturbed. How in the world would anyone take that job? But Jesus then pressed even further, declaring that the man became so destitute and hungry that he was looking at the pig's food, desiring to eat it. In other words, as he's going out there and he sees the, the trough and he's carrying this bucket and smelling the food, he pours it into their trough. All he wants to do in his heart is to get down on all fours and lower his face down in there and to look nose to nose with the pig and begin acting as one of them and consuming their food. That's what he wanted. But Jesus even pushes it farther and says, but no one would give him anything. He couldn't even get satisfaction from the pig's food. Do you see how horribly the people would have viewed this man? He has gone from the highest echelon of society to being the lowest of the low. He had genuinely hit rock bottom. But this is where we see repentance come in for this man. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. What is repentance? That's the question of the day. That's what we need to know from this text. What is repentance? The ESV version that I'm preaching from translates this little phrase that he Came to himself. It's an odd way to put it if you think about it. And many translations will actually translate this as a way to say that he came to his senses. Both of them give a little bit of a picture of the idea, but this phrase is actually really difficult to translate into English. We don't have any good word or phrase that adequately uh, uh, captures all of what is in this original Greek word. The actual word for repentance in Greek is a two-part word. It's two words mashed together, metanoia. And what it means is that there is a thinking around. What it literally applies to is the idea that you have a change of mind, a change of beliefs about your sin. It means that the things that you once pursued that were wicked, you now view them as, uh, as rejected. You now run from them. You used to love things, now you hate them. That kind of transformation of mind cannot help but make its way into your life. Genuine repentance results in a change of action. So repentance is at the very center of the Christian life. It is the proper response to the hearing of the gospel. You hear that you are a sinner. You hear that you are in need of salvation. And the proper response is to recognize that you are spiritually dead and destitute and that you need God. But sadly, it seems that so many Christians fail to understand the concept and the meaning of this word. So what I'd like to do for the next few minutes is simply clarify. And one of my favorite ways to clarify anything in life is to begin chipping away at what we know it is not. So what we're going to do is just take a few minutes to chip away at some of the counterfeit perspectives of what repentance is. First, to repent is not the same thing as fearing consequences. If you remember back to your childhood, you're certainly going to recollect occasions when your parents caught you breaking some family rule or another. And in that moment, you immediately went into a period of mourning, right? Like, what am I supposed to do now? You realize you're busted and you realize that your life is about to get really bad. So what do you do? You apologize. I'm sorry. I will never do that again. You begin to profusely denounce your actions and you promise that you will never, uh, never upon any, any purpose or beyond any hope, I will never do that again. Just hoping maybe, maybe, maybe my parents will accept my newfound awareness of my sin as an indication that I have learned my lesson already and that they don't need to discipline me. I can just get out of it because I have realized what I did was bad, and I said it was bad, I promise I won't do it again, it's all over, it's done, don't discipline discipline me please. I think that's not just my autobiography, I think that's your story too. I have never had to teach this to my children. They just inherited it from me. They do the same thing. And it's something that we all have in us. It's a natural knee-jerk reaction when we have been caught or we know that we're going to be caught to try to do damage control and try to limit our consequences. So we fear the result of our reputation being destroyed. We fear the fact that we are going to have to experience some kind of punishment for our actions. So what do we do? We apologize so that we won't have to ever experience the mass consequences we deserve. If you want to see a great example of this, look at politicians when they apologize. Listen very closely to what they say when they get caught in trouble. I'm sorry if my actions harmed anyone. It is not a real apology. It is not genuine. That happens on both the right and the left. This is not a pointing fingers. All I'm saying here is the fact that our sin, our genuine sin against God is not corrected just by fearing the fact that we are now guilty and responsible uh, before him, that we are going to experience punishment. Consider King Saul when he sinned. He wept and he mourned when Samuel came to him and told him that the kingdom would be taken away from him and what occurred? He actually did the right stuff. He confessed that he was wrong. He actually said a lot of the right words about his sin, and he even asked Samuel to pray for him. But Saul never genuinely repented. He was just fearful of the consequences that meant that he was going to die, and by saying the kingdom is stripped away from you, it was implying that his children also had to die, because that's how kingdoms and lines of succession come to a conclusion. We see that his heart motivation was to just limit the damage that was going to be done to him and to his offspring. So it is not the same thing to repent as to fear the consequences. Secondly, feeling guilty does not mean that you have genuinely repented. Judas, the betrayer, felt a tidal wave of guilt wash over him when Jesus was sentenced to death. That guilt overwhelmed him. You know the story. He was so distraught. What did he do? He hanged himself. But was that genuine repentance? Certainly not. Well, closely related to that would be our third example of false repentance, which is making restitution is not the same as repentance. Certainly, a truly repentant person will do what they can to correct the thing that they have broken. For example, a couple of weeks ago, Gideon preached for you from Luke chapter 19 about Zacchaeus. What does Zacchaeus do when he repents? He says that he will make it right, he will give abundantly above what he had swindled away from those people. He tried to make it right. But restitution is the outflow of genuine repentance. It is in itself not repentance. Just because somebody tries to fix what they have broken does not necessarily indicate that there has been genuine repentance in the heart. Let's go back to Judas for just a moment. He attempted to make it right. He took that bag of coins, that slave's wage, and he takes it in to the Pharisees and scribes, and he tries to return it. And then when they won't accept it, he throws it at their feet. He wants nothing to do with it any longer. He tries to give it away because he doesn't want to have that weighing on his conscience. Maybe I can repair what I have damaged. But does that show genuine repentance? Certainly not. There was no repentance in his heart. Fourthly, confessing your sins is not the same thing as genuine repentance. Now, please understand, acknowledging the fact that you are a sinner, acknowledging the specific sins that you have committed is definitely a part of actual repentance. But just because you declare with your mouth that you have sinned does not indicate that you have actually repented in your heart. It is possible to have an awareness and even verbalize without having a change take place inside. Let me give you an example from the book of First John. First John was written to this first century group of believers who were curious and, and concerned about why several people within the body had departed the faith and begun following a heretic and fallen themselves into heresy. And as they are doing this, they had written to John and they'd asked him, how is this even possible? So John writes to them and in John chapter 2, verse 19, he explains what exactly is going on. He says, they have gone out from you because they were never of you. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they have gone out from us so that it might be made known they have never been of us. They didn't stay because they weren't really saved. They departed because they weren't actually genuine believers. That's what John says in his gospel. And he actually goes on in the next several verses to describe them as antichrist, not the antichrist figure, but antichrist. And he says, and already many antichrists are in the world, John chapter 2. What we have to see here is that these people had come into the church and said the right words. Listen, Mike and Steve are great elders. Uh, They are very godly, wise elders. I am so thankful that they are elders alongside of me. They have protected this church in a myriad of ways, and I am so thankful that God has placed them here and the wisdom he's given to them. But I want you to understand something. When somebody seeks to become a member at our church, we ask a lot of questions and we listen cl- really carefully and closely to their testimony. We want to know what God has done in the life of a person. We want to, as far as we can, discern if a person is a genuine Christian and we give you paperwork. And if everyone here who's a member knows that it's a lot of paperwork, we give it to you so that you can work through questions and we can understand what's in your mind in order for us to know that you believe the right things. But listen, as wise as Mike and Steve are, and as much as we try to ask the right questions and get the right information, it's honestly not that hard to, to fool us. You can say the right words about the gospel. You can know it. You can understand it. You can intellectually actually hold fast to what the Bible teaches in your mind and you can actually live out your life in a certain way in front of us so that everything we see seems to align with it. Consider Judas. He did a great job of that, so much so that after a a three-and-a-half-year camping trip with the Messiah, he's serving alongside of these other disciples, and when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, he's the only one that's above reproach that no one suspects when he walks out the door into the night. This is an amazing thing that this guy was so well hidden but he went out from them because he was not of them. Or as Jesus says in John 13, he was not clean. The others had been made clean, but he was not made clean. There are people who will become members of churches, who will come in the doors, they will say the right words, they will live for a time the right way, but over the course of time reveal that they are not living in alignment with the word of God. And when they you seek to draw out repentance from them, they continue to run and run and run. And the Bible explains why that happens, Because some who say the right words have never genuinely repented at all. Fifth, feeling sad about your sin is not the same thing as genuine repentance. We've already seen and mentioned Saul and Judas. Both of those men felt intense sorrow over their action. One of the ministries that I've been most closely affiliated with over the last 15 years is that of of, uh, youth camp. I love youth camp. It's every summer. We take our students up to New Hampshire uh, back in 2009 uh, 2008 was a we were at a camp that was in Massachusetts that we went to and in January we were told the camp was shut down for health code violations so, Uh, my boss at the time, Ed Moore said, um, Caleb, find a youth camp for our students to go to. I literally called every campground in a 600-mile radius, and there was two that came up. One of the two of them burned down before the summer began. So we had one option. It was a camp in New Hampshire. Every summer since then, basically, I have gone there with a group of students. We have about 100 students there every summer. Some of you in the room have been to this camp, and you know what we do to you there. We keep you up late, we feed you bad food, we wake you up early in the morning, we run you and run you and run you until you are ragged, until there's no energy left in your body, and that's wonderful. And we preach a lot of sermons, a lot of sermons. And by the end of the week, every, every student is emotional. They're just emotional. And so by the end of the week, when you say you are a sinner before a holy God, students start crying. And as a, I don't know what to do with that. What am I supposed to do with a crying person? So I start trying to, to care for them and listen to them and hear them out. And sometimes, sometimes, God uses youth camp in a genuine way to save young people and bring them into his kingdom. I have seen that take place on many occasions. Hunter, you were saved at youth camp. Praise God. However, there are also occasions where people will go to youth camp and they will say the right words. They will confess their sin, and they will feel sorrow over them. I will sit there with this young man as he cries his eyes out, saying, I have done this, and I have done that, and I know that God looks at those things and hates them, and I know that I have sinned against Him." And then, three days later, we're back in New York, and they go back to their normal life, continuing on with no change. Sometimes you can say the right words, and you can respond absolutely no difference in your life. Just because you feel sorrowful for a moment, just because you have that temporary grief in your heart, it does not indicate necessarily that you have genuinely repented. Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse 10 says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Here we learn that from the outside the emotional perspective that we are looking at genuine repentance and false repentance can look very similar to our eyes. You can look at somebody and you can see a genuinely repentant person acting identical to a person who is only sorrowful because of uh, internalized grief but one of them leads to life and the other one leads to death. So merely acknowledging your sin is wrong and merely experiencing sorrow for the pain that you have caused, that's not the same thing as genuine repentance. But you do need to know that all true repentance does include this kind of grief. It does include a sorrow and bitterness over what have I done? It includes this anguish of soul. So here's the question, how in the world are we supposed to distinguish between these two things? In order to understand that, Now we have to observe the genuine article. We've chipped away and chipped away and chipped away. So now let's look at what we have left in the scripture to show us what genuine repentance actually looks like. If it's not fear or guilt or restitution or confession or sorrow, then what is it? In the parable of the prodigal son, we see some of it here present so clearly. We see the heart of genuine repentance when this young man comes to his senses. He comes to his senses. He comes to himself, it says here we see that his mind has changed. He hated his father. He rebelled against his father. He wanted nothing to do with his father. And now the way he thinks about his father is absolutely backwards from where it used to be. It has transitioned right side up where he used to think my father is overbearing. I want nothing to do with him any longer. Now he says, I just want to be a servant. I just want to gain a little bit from being near him, being around him. We see the heart of repentance, genuine repentance, when he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as one of your hired servants. He doesn't plan to reveal his emaciated body and try to get some kind of, Father, just look at me. Look how, look how bad I've had it. I just, I just need your help now. Just help me because I deserve it. No, he doesn't claim his birthright. He doesn't try to do damage control to lessen the weight of his sin. He doesn't justify his actions in any way, shape, or form. He simply acknowledges the fact that he is an unworthy son who does not even deserve to be considered part of the family any longer. He acknowledges his sin, and he says, I just want to be your servant. The quintessential example of genuine repentance in the entire Bible is seen in the life of David and his sin with Bathsheba. Now, I'm aware that most of you know this story well. And I know that you've heard it many times, but allow me to just once again briefly recap for you what this sin was. David, of course, you know, was anointed to be king, but he didn't actually take the throne for about 20 years after that moment he had with Samuel anointing him. And David, during those 20 years, spent a majority of that time running from Saul, who wanted to kill David. He he knew David had claim to the throne. He knew David had defeated Goliath, even when Saul had rejected that responsibility. And he knew that the ladies were singing, Saul's killed his thousands, but David's killed his ten thousands. And he knew that this young man was the one who was coming for his throne. And as much as David was gracious about this, uh, Saul sought to kill him. And Saul pursued him. Saul sent armies out to find him. So David went out into the wilderness and he hid. And if you've ever been in the desert, which I have, it's horrible. Living in the desert would be awful. And David goes out there, and not only does he go by himself, he actually begins collecting a group of warrior friends that he calls David's mighty men. It fluctuates from about 30 to about 50 at its largest. And these men were people who left their families and left everything behind and spent their lives attempting to get David on the throne and keep him alive until Saul is no longer ruling and reigning on the throne. So what we see happening here is that these men protected David and supported David and cared for David and loved David. One of them was named Uriah. After David became king, he rewarded Uriah. He gave Uriah a post. He was second only to Joab in command of the army, and he sent them out to do what armies do, to fight. He was in high command, and he was given much honor. He was given a home right next to the palace. So David, when he sent his soldiers to war one year, stayed home. And one morning when he got up to take his walk, he went out on the roof of his palace and began looking down and he saw this woman, Bathsheba, bathing. And he became fixated on her and he demanded to have a relationship with her, even though he knew that this was the wife of his friend. He put her in this position where she could not say no to him. He abused his office, he betrayed his friend, he manipulated this woman into a compromising position, and then when she became pregnant with his child, he tried to cover it up by getting her husband wasted and trying to get him to go home. But this man, being a man of honor, would not go home, but instead stayed the night right outside the gates of the palace, saying that if my men are still on the field, I will not go home. It didn't work. So he tells Joab, dear Joab, please send Uriah up to the front lines, and tell everyone else except him to retreat. So Joab goes, he begins a siege, Uriah is sent forward, everyone else is called back, and this man goes down fighting in a blaze of glory, defending his king, who has sent him there to die. Uriah was an upstanding, godly man, and David wasted his life, had his friend killed, to protect what? his own reputation. David sinned greatly, but then a prophet, a true friend of David, came to him, pointed his finger right in his face, and said, you are the man. And with that, David broke, and he repented of his sin, and he wrote two psalms, Psalm 34 and Psalm 51, that give us an idea of what was going on in his heart when he repented. And in these Psalms, we can do an autopsy of what a genuine repentance looks like by examining them carefully. Now, today we don't have time to do that, but what we will do is read the first four verses of Psalm 51 and then focus in on the first part of Psalm 51, verse 4. Hear these words. David said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Now, imagine, imagine this prodigal son. Is this not what he is saying as well? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Now here's the key line. This is what the prodigal says. And this is what David said that is so different than Judas, so different from Saul, so different from false repentance. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Who did David sin against? Uriah, certainly. Bathsheba, absolutely. The entire nation that he's supposed to be ruling without doubt. But he says it's against God. And that is because every sin, every single sin, whether it's large in our eyes or not, is always primarily directed not at those around us, but at God himself. It is primarily vertical, not horizontal. And David's sin and the prodigal son's sin was against primarily God of heaven. So it's interesting here that when we look at the parable, Jesus actually breaks the parable slightly. And he will do this occasionally, which is important to see what he's doing. The metaphor actually falls apart a little bit and he does so intentionally to reveal something to us. The guy says, the prodigal says, That I have sinned against heaven and before you. Well, in the the story, certainly the Father is God, is it not? So why does God why does Jesus use this phrase that he has sinned against heaven? It is to remind these Pharisees who were standing there listening that your sin is not primarily against other people who observe you. Your sin is against a holy God. So at the very heart. Repentance means to realize that God is perfect. He is righteous. He is holy. And it means to understand that he is worthy of our honor and obedience. But it also means that we realize we have fallen far short of the glory of God and to recognize that our sin has separated us from our God. And it is a change of mind about what we value. I no longer value the things that cause me to run from God. I no longer desire to have my own way. I no longer pursue achieving my own goals. I instead turn over my entire life to servanthood of God, serving Him in all that I do. Occasionally we sing the song, Not in Me, by Sovereign Grace. In that song it says, no humble dress, no servant prayer, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. What makes you right before God? You fill in the blank. If you fill it in with anything other than the blood of Jesus, you're wrong. Nothing that you can do can correct or repair the damage that has been done. But we continue with that song. It says, my righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. The prodigal son finally woke up to reality. He realized what was actually true. The pleasures of the world are of no value. The world has nothing to offer. Sin lies to you. It makes promises that it cannot keep. It will tell you that it will satisfy you, but it will not. It will simply take and take and take until you finally wake up and realize that you are starving and you are destitute. So we conclude our time together this morning with two very simple applications. First, It's actually the same application, just aimed in two different directions. I want to speak for a moment to those who are not believers, those who are not genuinely following Jesus Christ, those who have not been converted, who have not been born from above, those who have not been saved, to use the various metaphors of scripture. For those who are not Christians, I want you to understand that you must repent in order to get to heaven. There is no person who will ever be in heaven without repenting. Every person who is truly saved, has gone through the process of realizing that they were the prodigal son. They have run and rebelled and they must repent in order to make that relationship right with God the Father. Many people understand Christianity to be about content consumption. What do Christians do? Well, Christians, they, they go to church and they listen to sermons and they listen to people talk on YouTube and they listen to podcasts and they read their Bibles. That's what Christians do. They intake, they intake, they intake, but that's not what a Christian is. A Christian, a Christian is somebody who has repented and trusted Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Christianity is about much more than learning. It's about knowing God. It's about entering into relationship with the creator of the universe. And that relationship begins with God pursuing us and saving us. It begins with Christ coming for us and living and dying and rising again for us. And it continues with God, the Holy Spirit, convicting our hearts of sin and giving us the gifts of faith and repentance. So if you've heard this part of the parable, and today you realize I am the prodigal, I am this one who has run from the father. I am this one who has has done so much to break my relationship with God. I want you to know a spoiler alert for next time we're together. The father forgives. The father accepts him. No questions asked. In fact, we're going to get there. The, The son doesn't even have a chance to say these words. He doesn't even get them all out of his mouth before the father wraps him up in a hug. You have to see that if you are a sin, if you are a sinner, no matter how great your sin is, God has sent Jesus to cover that sin. That no matter how vile, we can be saved. Christians, I want to talk to you for a moment as well, because repentance, we often talk about in terms of conversion. Yes, repentance is for those who are unsaved to get saved, but repentance is also a lifestyle for us who are believers. You don't move on from this. You continue to repent because you continue to sin. As long as that sin is pervasive in your life, then you must go on repenting of those things in your life. It doesn't mean that you lose your salvation. It doesn't mean that you destroy your relationship with God the Father. But what it does mean is it does mean that you must confess, acknowledge that you have broken uh, his commands, and you must seek his forgiveness. So what we are called to do, what we are called to do as believers is to live a lifestyle of constantly acknowledging when we do what we are called not to do. And we must turn from those things And honor Christ. It's important for us to understand this because there are some people who teach inappropriately and inaccurately that you can just say a prayer or walk an aisle or sign a card or get dunked in a tub and then all of a sudden you're right with God and no matter what you do for the rest of your life, you're fine. You just got fire insurance for hell. Now you don't have to worry about it. Live however you want. I've known people like that in my life. And that is a dangerous lie from the pit of hell. The Bible teaches that a genuine Christian will continue on faithfully following God throughout their life, with, a, with repentance. Now, you might say, I'm not that bad. Like, I've grown a lot. I, I don't sin like I did before I was a Christian. All the big stuff I've cut out of my life. Well, listen, the Bible makes it very evident that you are a sinner. You still are, and so am I. I mean, if you don't believe me, then you're either not reading your Bible well enough, or you think very lowly of God and his standards. You think very little of his holiness. If you, don't, if you think that you truly are fully righteous, then just consider one command. God says that you must be holy, even as I am holy. That is a fearful thing to read that verse. I am not there, are you? I think anyone who says they are has blinded themselves to the fact that we are falling far short, even today, of following after everything God has called us to do. So I plead with you, Christians, search yourselves. Examine your heart. Determine is there any place in your heart that you are hiding from God, that you are pretending isn't there, that you are trying to ignore or cover up or not deal with the sin? I am calling you today to run to Jesus. Run to him, for he is forgiving and loving, and he will break that bondage over you. I know so many people, and I've seen this in my own life many times, who will hide sin, they will ignore it, they will cover it up because they think eventually it will just go away. And the desire for it will just go away. And they think that if they just can get past this year or this week or whatever it might be, then, then everything will change. But repentance begins with acknowledging that you have not primarily sinned against those around you. You have sinned against a holy God and you are called to turn from that, change your mind about that and live differently because of that. Next time that I'm going to be with you, we're going to continue this parable and we're going to see the heart of the Father as the, the Father responds to the repentance of the Son. But but until then, I just ask that you continue to study the Word and repent, live a lifestyle of repentance. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your Word is so clear. I thank you that your Word is able to be understood. I thank you that everyone who has the Spirit can discern, and so, Father, I pray that today that you would cause us to put into action these things that we have heard and the things that you have revealed. I pray, Father, that you would give us the strength to repent of sin and to live in an ongoing way in obedience. I pray for those who are far from you and who have run from you, who are currently prodigals, who have, uh, who have rejected you. I pray, God, that you would please turn their hearts, that you would save them and redeem them, draw them to yourself by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.